This is a Federal News Network podcast. What an irony. Congressional appropriations committees hold hearings on what harm might hit the military from Congress's own inability to pass a budget on time. But the security threat is real, according to my next guest, retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panaro, is chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association, and he joins me now. General Panaro, good to have you back. Privileged to be here. All right. So continuing resolution, things perk along just fine, seemingly. What's different about this year? and Why is this worse for the military now? Well, Tom, I would say we have to look at the external and internal threats. We are in a probably most unstable and dangerous world situation in the 45 plus years I've been working in national security. And we're in a CR since 1 October, the time when we ought to be deterring Russia and China. As you know, China's on the march. Russia's on the move. North Korea is now on the advance. Iran's on the verge of a nuclear weapon. Inflation's on the rise. And we're losing close to $6 billion a month in purchasing power for our national security. And this, by the way, is not just the Pentagon. It's the entire intelligence community, including the CIA. It's the warfighting combatant commands, the European command that has to deal with Russia, the Indo-Pacific command that has to deal with China. It's basically the inability to start progress on hypersonic weapons and quantum and artificial intelligence. And by the way, it also affects the domestic agencies. We shouldn't just basically be benign about this because, you know, Homeland Security, uh, DHS, everything is affected by a CR that requires spending at last year's level. And that's just not what we need in the world we live in today. So this is a very different situation than we normally have in the annual continuing resolution that runs for a couple of months. But guess what? We're already into month four and they'll never get it completed by February 18th. They're going to end up hopefully with a deal, but then with another two to three weeks to work it out. So we're looking at a continuing resolution that runs for half of the entire fiscal year this year. Yeah, that is worse than normal. I guess it's better than a shutdown, but that's not really saying much. And just a couple of detail questions on budget implications for the military. The president said that 9,000 troops would be put on high alert in Europe, and then later 3,000 would be moving, I think, to Romania that are actually on the march and almost deployed along with Romanian forces. That all doesn't come for free, does it? And none of it was budgeted, correct? Well, Tom, I would say that we have 1.3 million active duty personnel, and certainly we can identify 9,000, 10,000 troops that can be more ready than some of the others. Under the CR, obviously, day-to-day readiness has been affected. It's always affected. You do less training, tank training miles, fighter pilots flying the hours they need to fly, ships steaming and things like that. But that's a very small number of personnel. And I know our military will not send people forward that aren't 100% ready. But that just kind of masks over the bigger issue because the military right now is not able to modernize with a lot of the new weapons they need. They're not able to implement the European Defense Initiative or the Pacific Defense Initiative. President Biden has actually signed an authorization act of $790 billion for defense. It's $35 billion higher than FY21. So $35 billion they don't have access to. But yes, we can find nine or 10,000 troops to be more ready. And if they need to go forward, they can. But if we got into something much larger, then you really would see an impact. Right. And there's no overseas contingency operation in theory, at least in this budget, or maybe the same things have been moved to other lines. But can you envision an OCO being needed suddenly if, you know, God forbid, we well, have to actually shoot, say, in uh, Russia? 
time, yes, and it really will be an OCO for inflation. DOD basically budgeted under the previous administration what's called a gross domestic product deflator that was under 2%. Inflation right now is running 7%. Fuel inflation for the Department of Defense, which is the world's largest consumer of fuel, is 5x what they budgeted. So arithmetically, right now, we've already lost $25 billion in purchasing power. Number two, 3% inflation is a $20 billion hit to DOD. 6% inflation is a $40 billion hit. So Congress is going to have to make an adjustment just to cover inflation. In a way, that basically, the OCO was really for unintended overseas operations. This will be unintended inflation. So we're going to have to deal with that as well. Also, what's eroding the purchasing power of the department, the intelligence community, and our domestic agencies. We're speaking with Arnold Panaro. He is chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association and a retired Marine Corps major general. And we should also point out you did a stint for the Senate Armed Services Committee as a staff member at some point in your career. And what do you think is going on in the Armed Services Committee's thinking? Because Republican or Democratic They generally get the military requirement and understand the needs and requirements of the military. They must be pulling their hair out as members of those committees, even as they are in the larger institution that can't get out of its own way. Um, Excellent observation. And I worked 24 years in the Senate, 14 years as staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And the good news today, that committee operates on a bipartisan basis, just like it did when I was there with Senator Sam Nunn and John Warner. Strom Thurmond, John Glenn, many people like that. This year, Senator Inhofe, the ranking member, proposed an increase in defense spending that Chairman Jack Reed went along with, so a plus $25 billion. The House Armed Services Committee went along with that, Adam Smith and Mike Rogers, and they passed the National Defense Authorization Bill. 88 members of the Senate supported it. The president signed it into law. By the way, the Companion Appropriation Committee, John Tester and Dick Shelby, also marked up their defense appropriation bill at the higher level that was approved by the Senate. And so the defense committees, you're right, they are doing their job. They're not the problem, and they are very concerned. Senator Jack Reed, as chairman, gave a very compelling floor speech on the Senate floor Tuesday night outlining all the incredible downsides of a year-long continuing resolutions. Tom, being frank, there's no adjective strong enough to describe the ill effects of what a year-long continuing resolution would be. And for those that are advocating, not on the armed services and defense appropriation, but there are those in the Congress that are advocating, okay, a year-long CR would be okay. They didn't pass fourth grade arithmetic because if you look at it over a year, my calculations that we now have in the NDI white paper, and frankly, behind the scenes, unofficially, I checked it with a lot of smart people, both in the legislative and executive branch, we would lose between 76 and $100 billion a year for defense, which is worse than the worst year of sequester, which General David Goldfein said took five years for them to recover their warfighting readiness. We're looking at levels of spending that would be catastrophic for our national defense. And frankly, it's hard for me to understand why the Congress can't get its act together. Norm Ornstein, you know, one of the great observers of the Congress, calls Congress the broken branch. Well, when it comes to this CR... They're about as broke as broke can get. All right, so readiness would be hurt, development underway, hypersonics, a modernized nuclear delivery system, there's new bombers, lots of programs that can't get very far. And then a lot of these then devolve to the defense industrial base, 
of which representing, you know, at the NDIA. And what are contractors saying about this and what's the effect on them? Well, Tom, I think you have to also look back at what our industry has been through for the last two years with COVID. We're one of the few industries that basically when there was no protection, there was no vaccine, there was no mask, there was no nothing. Our industry stepped up to the plate and came to work, unlike a lot of other industries, totally understandable. But we basically came to work for national security. And now it's been a real strain on our supply chain. We actually are publishing a new report today called Vital Signs, where we are assessing that the health of our industry right now does not have a passing grade because of all of these things. The industry has been consolidating for decades. And so, unfortunately, if we have that year-long CR, the large primes have a lot of cash reserves, but there are 1,700 companies that are a member of NDIA. Most of them are small and medium. They won't survive a year-long CR. They can't basically just stay there and wait for the department to basically start paying the bills. And so, the combination of COVID, the combination of CR, if it goes any longer, it's already had a detrimental effect. It would have a very, very profound effect on our industry. And frankly, if you look at it, government doesn't build anything anymore. It all comes from industry. So the high technology, the great systems that we need so our warfighters are never in a fair fight come from our industry. But if the government can't fund it, they isn't going to be there. I've never been more worried and more concerned about our national security. And again, I've been doing this for over 50 years. Arnold Panaro is chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association and a retired Marine Corps Major General. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you. Such a great program and so important for your listeners to be informed and educated on all these issues. We'll post this interview along with a link to the NDIA white paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.